Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the event The Palace Letters, Jenny Hocking in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, recorded live at Byron Theatre as part of the Byron Writers Festival Out of Season program. How nice to see a live audience. (laughs) And let's hope there are many more of them without interruption. Wouldn't that be nice to think about? There are at least four notable things about the story of Jenny Hocking's hunt for the so-called private letters between Sir John Kerr and Buckingham Palace relating to his dismissal uh, of Gough Whitlam, an elected Prime Minister commanding a majority of seats in the House of Representatives, the People's House. One is that the Queen still wanted to keep the letters buried 45 years after the event. Another is that the Australian National Archive, which describes itself as the guardian of over 1,000 years of iconic national documents, chose to fight tooth and nail to keep them secret on the ludicrous basis that they were Sir John Kerr's own private correspondence. Another is Jenny Hocking's extraordinarily dogged determination to beat both the palace and the archive. And the fourth is the palace letters themselves, their revelations and their loaded implications. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Jenny Hocking, welcome back to Byron. Thank you very much, Kerry. Thank you. We live in an age where even important events Uh, can disappear from the public eye within days, swamped by the never-ending tide of 24-hour news, so much of which is so bloody boring (laughs) and and irrelevant. And we're talking about something that happened nearly half a century ago here, so uh, before we cut to the heart of what you've uncovered, why does it remain important to all generations of Australians to understand what really happened? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it's neither boring nor irrelevant. Um, and, and I think the key to the dismissal and understanding that what is really a continuing fascination about it is that we haven't known the full story of what happened 45 years ago. And that's quite a remarkable thing. It was an unprecedented episode in our history where an elected government was removed from office by an unelected official without warning and despite the fact that the Whitlam government retained its majority at all times and despite the passage of a motion of no confidence later that day against the appointed Fraser government. Um, And so it is something that's absolutely critical to understand what happened for the purposes of history, but also, of course, because we need to understand what is the relationship, the vice-regal relationship in a post-colonial setting, um, which these letters reveal to us so magnificently. And I've actually been surprised during the course of the court case just how much interest there has been in unpacking the full story. Because I think we all know now that the story we we heard and were told and believed at the time of the dismissal 
was really a very skeletal one. Yeah. Um, and as more and more revelations have come out along the way, at every point of that, there's been quite a significant surge of interest in the dismissal again. And I found it at times truly shocking to be working through archival material and find not only how much had been kept from us, but how much that had been deliberately kept from us by the key protagonists. Mm. And the last thing I'll say on this about the significance of it is the significance of the court case in terms of enabling us to look at material. Because what drove me was that these really important historical documents were actually kept from us by the Queen. Um, and that that's, was, a, that's a statement in itself, isn't it? Well, isn't it, it is. It's another aspect of, of what we see as the role of the palace in this history. It's the role of the palace in preventing us from knowing this part of our history. So my view, both as a historian, but also, of course, as an Australian, was that we have a right to know our history. You know, it's a history that was kept from us for 45 years. And there it was in our own archives in Canberra, embargoed by the Queen. Mm. So, uh, so where there is an interest, I think it's because of all of those things, because we haven't yet found that final story. No. When you first began researching and writing the two-volume biography of Gough Whitlam, where did the dismissal sit as, as a priority for you? And did you have any sense at all, any sense at all, of the treasure trove of material that still sat undiscovered and not just the palace letters. There was a lot of material that you, when you really did start walking down that trail, that you were accessing uh, without veto. Well, I, I, I didn't know the extent to which uh, the archival material would so dramatically change the history, no. I knew there was a huge story to tell about Gough Whitman when I started the biography because funnily enough, although so much was written about him and his government, and of course the dismissal, it tended to be in those terms. And so here's this fascinating, extraordinary Australian, and apart, you know, Graham Freudenberg's work, of course, was really seminal in that way, but a full-scale biography from start to finish, um, you know, in terms of his fascinating family background, his childhood in Canberra, and all of the things that influenced him had really not yet been put together. And I began it in the early, around about 2003, 2004. And so John Kerr's papers were just becoming available under the 30-year public access rule. So it coincided with that. Um, but I also was very conscious that I didn't want the dismissal to become Gough Whitlam's life in terms of the biography. No because it had become so much a part of the way we looked at him in office, the way we looked at him as a political individual. And I wanted to take it from the other end and look forward. And I think in the process of doing that, by perhaps turning around the way the dismissal was normally looked at, it actually painted a different picture of it because it put it in a context of, um, of, of, of an unravelling as it developed. Mm. But no, I had no idea that some of the most critical material in that history, as we now know it, had been lying in Kerr's papers for decades. And you would know the key one, of course, was the revelation about the role of Sir Anthony Mason, a High Court Justice at the time, in Kerr's planning, as he says, fortifying me for the action I was to take and even writing a draft letter of dismissal for Kerr. So that was just one of the... And I. I write in this book, The Palace Letters, my, 
my extraordinary feeling of opening that file and knowing that this file was really going to change the history of the dismissal as we understood it, and, and it has. It sounded to me, from what you have said, that it, it confirmed suspicions rather than substantially surprised you, but we'll get to that shortly. Um, Kerr's, Kerr was actually Gough's fifth choice as Governor-General. Um, there was a list that Hasluck had submitted of his suggestions and Gough had canvassed a couple of other people uh, and, uh, and he, he went through a few of them. But, but there should have been, I would have thought, quite a bit of information on Kerr that when Gough did start going down that road that should have sounded alarm bells. It, it should have. <laughs> um, look, I think... It's one of the strange things about Whitlam, I thought when I was working on writing the biography, that there was an element to him that was not, I suppose you'd say, streetwise, or he didn't judge people, I think that's clear. He was not an, an expert judge of people. He didn't suspect people. Um, others in the Labor Party who had worked against Kerr in the 1950s, because Kerr was always an extreme right-winger, um, a grouper, we'd say today, um, in, in the Labor Party, in the industrial disputes, and Lionel Murphy in particular, uh, Whitlam's Attorney General, had frequently appeared in those industrial disputes for left-wing unions, always against John Kerr, and often Jim McClellan, they were close friends. So he knew of Kerr's background, and he, when he heard that Kerr had been appointed, he apparently said, Gough will rue the day he ever appointed John Kerr Governor General. Um, but, but the other thing about Whitlam, he was such a believer in the institutions, and you see that again and again. He had almost a blind faith in the institutions that he could not conceive of people behaving in particular improper ways in those institutions. And he believed Kerr would do um, what would behave with propriety. He believed he'd come, of course, as former Chief Justice of not long standing either, the mm. Chief Justice of New South Wales. And if anything, that to me would have put out alarm bells because why is somebody moving from a position of real significance and power in New South Wales as Chief Justice after barely a year when he started speaking to, uh, to Whitlam about becoming Governor-General and you know, if he didn't want to play an active role? And there's a lot of our archival material showing that Kerr had an activist perception of the role of Governor-General, quite an improper one from which the outset. Was, which was the complete antithesis of Gough's view of the Governor-General's role. And, and it was a matter of record if he'd looked closely enough. Is that fair to say? I'm not sure if it was a matter of record in terms of Kerr's views a at the time. A lot of those have come out subsequently through interviews, for example. Robert Hope said that uh, Kerr spoke to him in some detail before he took up the position mm. and specifically asked about the powers of a Governor-General, yeah. the, the explicit powers of a Governor-General. And there's no doubt he was fascinated by that and he was um, determined to play, a, to play a key role. But the other thing about Whitlam, not only is he an institutionalist, but he... Because of that, he behaved with what he always saw as this really strict propriety, and he was not prepared to tell others in his party about his thoughts about appointing Kerr until he had told the Queen of that appointment. Mm. And so you have a slightly ludicrous situation where others in the, in the party and in government didn't know that Kerr was going to be appointed mm. until the announcement had actually been formalised, which but, is pretty shocking. Yeah. Like all of us, I guess, there were great contradictions in Whitlam and, and, and that was one of them, that on the one hand, he, he did have this great respect 
for the institutions, and one of them the institution of the independence of the public service, even though that so many of those senior departmental heads had, had worked for uh, conservative ministers and prime ministers for 23 years, um, basically had become conservatives themselves and, and was, uh, in some celebrated instances were certainly not acting independently, but he embraced those public servants. Uh, and, and, I, and I think some of that went, went to his own father, who was, was he crown, chief crown solicitor or solicitor general? He was crown solicitor. Crown solicitor for yes, Menzies. Yes, yes. And, and I think that's right. But Menzies, uh, that's why I found Whitlam's background so fascinating, because, you know, he was, he was someone who very unusually, um, in fact, I don't think there's anybody else who has spent their formative years growing up in Canberra at the time when Canberra was literally just developing because his father had, as Crown Solicitor, or his deputy then at that point, had come to Canberra in, I think, 1927 with that, you know, that huge wave of public servants from Sydney and Melbourne, Melbourne in particular. And so Canberra was literally growing up with Gough Whitlam and he went to Tilopia Park High School and he then yeah. went to Canberra Grammar for two years, but he loved Canberra. But at the same time, you see, he was crash or crash through Gough Whitlam, and he was Gough Whitlam who was prepared to turn some tradition on its head. And when, when it looked like uh, supply was, uh, was that, that they were going to run out of money because supply was being uh, blocked in the Senate, he was uh, trying. He was looking at all kinds of ways to uh, to raise that money and keep it going. But let's let's not dwell too much on Gough himself right at this moment because there are big issues here too. So so while various elements had come to life uh, over the decades, had, had come into the public gaze over, over the decades after the dismissal of, of aspects of what had happened that we didn't originally know. Can you just recap on what new information you had found out from your sleuthing through National Library, the archive, and the Kerr files that you've started to talk about that you were able to get your hands on before the palace letters? And I'll take you through them individually because they add up to a picture, quite a telling and compelling picture. So Fraser's dealings with Kerr. There was some stuff that was known. We knew that Kerr had spoken to him that morning. But, but I think um, there, was, there were interviews that Fraser himself gave uh, for the National Library and, and also Reg Withers mm. that were quite significant. Reg Withers in particular. Uh, the, the key thing through the initial story that we understood for the dismissal was that Kerr acted alone, that it was a lonely, Alan Reid described it, a lonely, agonising decision. And the thing is that the more material came out, the less lonely that actually appeared to be because so many other people we now know actually were involved in that beforehand. And much of this is really constitutionally deeply improper. There's only one constitutional relationship in terms of government, and that is with the government of the day. There's no constitutional relationship with the opposition and the Governor-General at all. Um, and, in fact, there's some very interesting... Um, advice from the Attorney-General's Department when Kerr sought to, to speak to the leader of the opposition at that time, Billy Snedden, um, and was told in no uncertain terms that this had to go through the Prime Minister. So, um, we now know that Fraser, in fact, was um, in telephone conversation with, with Kerr before the dismissal, and that comes from Reg Withers, again, an embargoed um, interview, which he had embargoed himself until after his death. And I happened to remember that that was embargoed and soon after he died, I, I looked at that and opened that for the first time. But it was, um, 
again, quite shocking to see that what Fraser and others had publicly insisted upon at every point, um, that there had been no prior contact with Kerr, had unravelled twice. It had first unravelled when it was revealed that Fraser had, in fact, spoken to Kerr that morning, that he'd set the conditions of being appointed as Prime Minister, um, all of it, of course, secret from the actual Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, and which Fraser and Kerr had both denied for a decade. Reg Withers again, and this is only about five years ago, that posthumously released interview shows that he was in Fraser's office in the weeks before, I think about a week before the dismissal, when Kerr rang, spoke to Fraser on his private line, and as he hung up, uh, Withers recounts that Fraser looked at him and said, uh, you didn't hear that conversation, it didn't happen, and Reg Withers said, I didn't hear a thing. <laughs> so it's and, and it was secret. abundantly clear in that, in that conversation. So, so um, Kerr had conversations with both Goff and Malcolm on the morning of November 11, and, and the, the, the conversation with Goff was quite formal and straightforward and I think pretty short. The conversation with Fraser by comparison was quite detailed and it went to um, uh, getting Fraser's agreement to a set of conditions if Fraser was to be made Prime Minister. And what was clear to Fraser from that conversation was that Kerr was going to act to dismiss Gough. Oh, absolutely. So Fraser was under serious pressure inside his own party room. Uh, Liberal senators were starting to crack. Uh, we now know that uh, that five of them were going to uh, were going to basically allow supply through uh, within a few days, uh, and Fraser was able to go into his party room and hold the line by telling them, basically, not the exact words, but trust me, mm. it's going to work. Mm. And so, so that was just one, in a way, small illustration of the immense advantage that Fraser had in that whole process. Mm. It's it's. Extraordinary, and in many ways, I think I describe it in the biography that that Kerr had begun treating Fraser as if he was in fact um, in in government already. He was he was speaking to him with the authority that he was refusing to give Whitlam, and what he spoke to Whitlam about that morning was a continuation of what had really been a rolling conversation ever since supply was blocked, which was that Whitlam at some point would call the half-Senate election. And that had always been the case. That was the government's advice, it was its decision. And that's another thing that got lost in the history which I was determined to bring back in, that it was clearly and publicly known that that was the government's response. By the 6th of November, the government had, Whitlam had decided he would announce that on the 11th, that the half-Senate election would be announced in the Parliament on the 11th of November on the afternoon. It would be held on the 13th of December. That, the paperwork for all of that is in the archives. Um, and the, the shocking thing about the dismissal, apart from its deception and the, and the breach of various conventions, is that Whitlam had confirmed with Kerr just that morning the wording of the letter that he had to sign to go out to all the different state governors for issuing of writs for the half-senate election. So that morning they'd conferred on that. Kerr had agreed with it. Kerr had, had, had conveyed that to Whitlam. That's why Whitlam was at Yarralumla at one o'clock. Um, Whitlam was going out. To call the half-senate election. call the half-senate election. Yes. Yes. And it's also why he always called it an ambush, because he was there under quite different purposes from Kerr. And it's interesting, that it's acknowledged in the palace letters, actually, in a letter that Kerr writes to Charteris after the dismissal. 
and he actually says to him, well, I knew what his advice was. So he acknowledges Whitlam had given him advice to call the half Senate election, and he says, I, I know what his advice was. Well, I knew what his advice was. He'd given it to me that morning over the phone. I did not accept it. And then he says to Charteris, you know the reasons why I couldn't risk um, that for the monarchy. So it, it's a, the palace letters have really given us the most extraordinary insight into a whole lot of these actions that we simply didn't know before. Okay, so the palace letters are the icing on our cake tonight. <laughs> um, so then there's uh, Kerr and Mason, Sir Anthony Mason, who at that stage was uh, a High Court judge, uh, had been a junior to Kerr uh, in court cases much earlier in their lives. They had a friendship and uh, Mason subsequently, appointed by a Labor government, became Chief Justice of the High Court. So, so tell me briefly about that, that Kerr-Mason connection because this is uh, extraordinary too. It, it was a startling uh, find among Kerr's papers and not one I ever expected to find, but it, it just had a simple title headed conversation with Sir Anthony Mason, I think it said September 1975 to November 1975, and I was just struck by how it just said conversation, as though there's just one conversation over three months. And uh, I asked for it, and when it arrived, I still remember where I was when I read it, because it was such a shock. And it's written in the most melodramatic language, which Kerr tends to do. And for once, it was actually perfectly appropriate, because he writes that, you know, if this, if this document is found in my archives after my death, it's because his name must be known, and it will be in the shadows of history. And I was thinking, who is he speaking about? And it was, in fact, Sir Anthony Mason, as he described, they'd had not just three months of meetings, but probably six months of meetings, including setting up the most bizarre uh, tutorials, you'd have to say, in secret, with the law school at the ANU, to advise Kerr, again, all of it in secret, Whitlam knew nothing about this, and nor did John Menadue, head of department, to advise Kerr on what his powers were, this obsession with his powers and the extent of his powers. Long before there was anything like a, a, a political, let alone a constitutional yeah, this crisis. this begins in March. He starts having these very odd meetings with senior uh, legal academics at the ANU in, um, in March, in March, April 1975. But, but, but also tellingly, Mason says to Kerr, while he's having his own private meetings, he says that he probably shouldn't be a part of the body of discussion with these other law academics about the reserve powers because it might come before the High Court. Yes, he So there, Mason that. was acknowledging mm. that this was a matter that could come before the High Court, and that is also very significant in relation to Garfield Barwick's advice. But yes, so how important did Mason become for Kerr? Oh, absolutely critical. Kerr, Kerr describes him as his guide. Um, he's with him the entire way along. Um, and I think it actually means that we have to reconsider Barwick's role, because Barwick's always been seen as the sort of shady figure behind Kerr. But actually, when you read Kerr's description, which is a 12-page type description of absolutely riveting um, revelation, and Mason then came out the day my biography of Whitlam came out where this was revealed, and he came out with his own statement, largely confirming everything that yeah. Kerr had said. But it was... It took issue with him on some things, though, didn't it? Yeah, but the substance of it, yes. he confirmed. And, and I think... What, what really surprised me also was the way in which Kerr and Mason worked together to finalise 
what was the most appropriate time to bring Barwick into their conversation. So far from Barwick driving this himself, he was, in a sense, being used by them to bolster a decision they'd already taken. Um, and, and so Barwick only comes in in the last two days, but Mason and Kerr have been all the way along for the previous three months. And I interviewed Mason when I wrote the biography, and of course I didn't want to tell him exactly what I knew, but I wanted to give him an opportunity to speak to it. And I did ask him, and I actually said, in the interests of history, you are one of the, you know, only three people remaining who can shed light on this. Would you speak to me about this? And he just looked at me and said, I owe history nothing. And, you know, I had many moments of being utterly shocked in the things I found. But that struck me as such a moral question that somebody who had been a public figure, paid for as a public individual for so many decades, could play with our government and our appointment of government as if it was not of relevance to the Australian people and had sought to keep that secret then for 37 years. I was pretty shocked. Yeah. And I put that straight in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and he still, beyond that statement, remains silent. That's right, he hasn't spoken. I did write and ask him if he would speak to yeah. me and he wrote back and said, I think I've told you quite enough. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then there was Kerr and Barwick. And, and Gough had expressly said, as, as Prime Minister, had advised or instructed his Governor-General that he was not to get uh, an opinion from the Chief Justice of the High Court about the reserve powers. And that was precisely what Kerr did behind Whitlam's back. And there's no other way to describe it. It's exactly what it was. And the only, the only sort of upfront thing about it, thing about it was that Barwick had insisted on his visit being recorded formally. Mm. Um, but, but his opinion, what, what his, the, the opinion that he gave uh, to, uh, to Kerr was also surely compromising his own position as Chief Justice. Uh, ab absolutely, and, and you're right, he, put it, he insisted on it going in the vice-regal notices that he had been there, um, and this is something that Kerr and Mason did not do with their meetings, that they were kept entirely from the vice-regal notices. Um, but Kerr's opinion, uh, sorry, Barwick's opinion was written after, after Kerr said, I have already decided to dismiss the government, you, you know, will you write an opinion indicating that that is constitutionally proper, which um, Barwick did. And Barwick didn't initially want that to be released, but it was after the dismissal when Kerr faced the great um, anguish from so many people that he prevailed upon Barwick to release it, which he did. But he also prevailed upon Mason to let his, his, his advice and his name and his role be known. There's many, many references to that throughout the archives. And Mason did not want his, his involvement known at all and kept that secret. And just on the fact that the Labor government, the Hawke Labor government appointed him as Chief Justice, after this came out, um, one of the Hawke ministers in particular spoke to me with some distress and said that they would never have made that appointment had they known of the role of Mason in the demise of the previous Labor government. Well, you'd have to wonder whether, whether there wouldn't have been pressure on Mason to actually resign from the High Court if this had, been, uh, if this had come out. Yeah, I think because that's... Sure, because, I mean, is there... 
I don't think that there can be much of an argument mounted that, that it compromised him and, and virtually out of his own mouth when he said that he could have ended up hearing this on the... He'd have had to recuse himself if it had come to the High Court. Mm. The, the fact that he, re, that he removed himself from the ANU yeah. meetings certainly, yeah. certainly suggests that. But, but those other conversations were compromising. Yes. And, and the uh, advice. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And in particular the advice. Yeah. But I think they tried to work around that by saying, oh, it could never have come to the High Court, which is just not... Not correct. I mean, most of these things, um, I don't think there's any, there's any basis for saying categorically it could not have come to the High Court. And equally with Barwick, you know, all of the High... There's no special position for the Chief Justice in that sense. It was known since, I think, the 1920s that the High... From another ruling that the High Court did not give advisory opinions, um, and that had been the case for since then. And you know, there's no reason why he couldn't equally have gone, for example, to Lionel Murphy, who was on the High Court, and he would have received a very different opinion from him. So he knew what he was going to get from Barwick. And, that and Barwick was a former Attorney-General in a Liberal government to Menzies. So there's another kind of part of the trail. Um, and then, of course, there's Kerr and Prince Charles. And you learnt about that, I think, through the, through the Kerr papers, right? Yes. Well, look, some of the, some, a lot of this material actually all ended up in our evidence book that went to the federal court initially and ultimately to the high court because trawling through Kerr's papers, but other papers as well... So these are the papers that you were able to get? Yes, the, that's right. That, the, the, that ones were that were, in, yeah. the ones that were actually open. And there was yeah. a huge amount open in Kerr's papers that not only shed light on the dismissal, but which shed light on the palace letters. And by getting some opening on the palace letters was a very important part for mounting a court case subsequently. But some of the material was, there was a journal from Kerr in 1980 where he actually talks about the palace letters. He records some of them, he refers to them. He's visiting the palace over this time while he's in exile in England, desperately trying to get the palace letters released. So the really strange thing is that they're meant to be his personal papers. He wants them released and he can't actually <laughs> release them. Uh, so this was very important for our court case. I also found extracts from about seven of the letters. They were unidentified. They just said extracts from letters, and you were meant to sort of figure out who they were to and from. But from matching quotes he had from the palace letters elsewhere in his papers, I was able to ascertain that they were, in fact, extracts from about seven of the letters. And there's a really critical document, I think, which is a list that Kerr prepared, just headed... Um, I think it's, point, it's headed handwritten notes on dismissal and they're enumerated and there are several points in the dismissal that he there lists and one of those is the Queen's private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, who wrote the letters. Kerr has written Charteris's advice to me on dismissal. And it's critical because Kerr clearly felt that whatever communications he was having with Charters constituted a form of advice. And I, so we put a lot of these things together, including other letters between David Smith and Kerr, into our book that went to, the, went to the federal court. One other thing that I think was very important that hadn't been picked up before was actually in Lord Mountbatten's biography by Philip Ziegler, which is that um, uh, Mountbatten wrote to Kerr in the week, only a week, I think, after the dismissal, in the most glowing terms, praising him for his correct and courageous action in dismissing the Whitlam government. He actually came out to Australia a few months later, stayed with Fraser, um, and, uh, and went to visit Kerr again to personally um, congratulate him on, on his action. In language that we now know is very, very similar to the language that Prince Charles used when he also wrote to congratulate Kerr 
after the dismissal. So no doubt we were getting a sense that the palace was at the very least not unhappy with what had happened with the dispatching of Gough Whitlam by yeah. her. But come back to Charlie. So there's a whole, I mean, all of the players, pretty much, all of the players in the subsequent dismissal go to Port Moresby uh, for the independence celebrations, independence celebrations, yes, for the independence celebrations. And the independence had basically come about because the Whitlam government had made it so. So they're all there, including Prince Charles representing the Crown. So Charles and Kerr have a conversation. That's right. And again, Kerr goes looking. This is in Kerr's journal. Um, it's all reported there because it relates to one of the palace letters. Um, but what he recounts there was quite astonishing, that he had a conversation with Prince Charles in September, it was it September 1975. Yeah. So it's sort of this very Shakespearean um, a, a, a set where all of the key protagonists are actually there. Barwick's there, Kerr is there, Whitlam's there, and of course um, Prince Charles is there, as you said. And uh, Kerr confides in him that he's concerned that if supply is blocked, and it hasn't yet been blocked, it's another month, I think, or three weeks before it's blocked, um, but he's concerned that he may need to dismiss the government. And his greatest concern to Charles, as he re recounts it in his journal, is that he's fearful that Whitlam will in turn hear of this and seek Kerr's recall. Kerr was always utterly obsessed about the possibility he'd be recalled as Governor-General. This comes through again and again. Um, and he told Prince Charles this. It's quite an extraordinary conversation. Now, up to that point, we only had his recollection of it through his journal, um, that he had this conversation, that Charles had then spoken to the Queen about it, and that Sir Martin Charters then wrote to Kerr about that question of whether Whitlam might seek his dismissal, in effect, as, as Governor-General. But that was an extraordinary moment, because if that was verified by the letters, which it has been, that showed that the palace was aware from September yes. that Kerr was considering dismissing the government. Um, again, the palace knew what our Prime Minister did not, and I think that's really stark. So all of these things were beginning to come to the fore, um, but many of them were still to be confirmed yeah. or otherwise by the letters. And, and so just, just to see this mosaic, while Fraser is having his own dialogue with Kerr, um, perhaps working each other, um, and this is my considered opinion, having read all of this now. This is the picture that really emerges. And then you've got, uh, so you've got that game going on within the Liberal opposition and the build-up there. Then you've got Kerr, who has already, since March that year, been um, drawing other people in, Anthony Mason, these academics, these senior uh, constitutional law academics at ANU, all in secret, in September, he's, uh, he's had the conversation with Prince Charles expressing his fears that he might be sacked by the Queen if he wants to move, that Gough will ask for his sacking if he moves on him. All of these things still, even in September, before there is an actual crisis. Hmm. This is all in Kerr's head. He's the one person, it would seem, who sees this coming with such clarity that he's got this small private army of people that he's advising. And so now the letters themselves. So um, you lost your first case. You, you, you've you've realised that these that this correspondence exists. The the archive, and we'll come to their role shortly. But the archive says no, you can't have this. It's you know it's embargoed. 
uh, you take it to the federal court, a single judge in the federal court, you lose that case, you then go to the full bench of the federal court, uh, you lose again. Your final throw of the dice, the High Court appeal. How hard was it to keep it going at this point? Because this is taking place over years. Was it a whole process, four years? Four years. Um, it was a remarkable court case, absolutely fascinating and extremely daunting at the same time. So let me just say from the outset how grateful I am and that we all must be to the extraordinary legal team who all worked on a pro bono basis. Um, we had Anthony Whitlam QC at the Federal Court, uh, Brett Walker SC at the full Federal Court and the High Court, instructed by Cause Chambers Westgarth and Tom Brennan SC throughout the whole case. And they are just phenomenal. They worked for four years all pro bono. They are absolutely dedicated and wonderful. And the case really came about because after all of this work that Kerry's uh, discussing, I happened to read, and there's a fortuitous circumstance that's happened so often in this case, I happened to read an online blog that Tom Brennan, the Sydney barrister, had written, headed, Australia owns its history. <laughs> and it was about the palace letters. And it said that we should have access to them because under our Archives Act, he argued, they should be released. So I contacted him and said, yes, I quite agree. <laughs> and we arranged to meet. Um, and, you know, if there's a motto in the story is that don't go and see a Sydney barrister with a great idea because you might end up with a high court action. Um, <laughs> and, and it was a fascinating conversation. And he said to me, look, go away and write for me um, the four or five major points at why these are not personal letters between the Governor-General and the Queen. What are your, what's your strongest evidence, the strongest... So this is where all the archival research came in. So I wrote that for Tom. He agreed to write an opinion pro bono, and it really, it really came out from there. But it could never have happened without pro bono legal advice, because the other side of the archives calling them this ludicrous title, personal, as if letters between a Governor-General and a Queen at the apex of a constitutional monarchy during a dismissal of a government could be personal. Um, the other side of that is that they don't come under the Archives Act. And that means there's a legal catch-22. You can't appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is under the Act. You can only take a federal court action. And I now know just how expensive that is because the, High court, the, the National Archives got a cost order for every one of my costs. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's onerous. It's completely onerous and impossible if you do not have, as I did, as we all did, the wonderful legal team that was prepared to work on a pro bono basis. And I think that's a really important aspect of the Archives Act that needs to be looked at and, and changed. But as a very quick aside, that, uh, the, the significance uh, of the High Court ruling doesn't just relate to Australia, it relates to the Commonwealth, mm. doesn't it? Mm. And, and, the, and the Queen's capacity to retain secrets. Absolutely. This, this thing that, that, that I was never fully aware of until the court case, is that there is this absolutely impenetrable band around any royal documents called a Convention of Royal Secrecy. And it's astonishing how much that is still in place and still presumed without question by our archives and certainly by Buckingham Palace. And it means that until this court case, nowhere in the Commonwealth countries have you been able to access royal material unless the royal family says you can. And some of you will be familiar with Julia Baird's recent book on a couple of years ago now on Queen Victoria. Going back, you know, well over 100 years, and she tells the remarkable story of trying to get 
Queen Victoria's letters from the Royal Archives in, in the UK. But this was run repeatedly through the court case by the National Archives legal team, simply stating the Convention of Royal Secrecy. And we were able to, through a whole lot of circumstances of what I'd found in the archives, be able to unravel that because normally it's impossible to run a court case around secret royal documents because you've never been able to see anything about them. Yes. That's the nature of royal secrecy. Instead, we had Kerr's papers on lots of different levels pointing us to what was in the letters. And he had actually, he had actually ordered um, his personal secretary to, to, to make yes. him a copy of these highly secret files, presumably when he was working on his book. That's right, that's right. Now, that you, you actually stumbled on that, didn't you? I, I did, after the court case began, actually. Um, and they're fascinating letters um, between David Smith, the official secretary, and Kerr, while Kerr's in France, having just left office, and he wants a complete set of the palace letters. And that's the other thing that actually was really important in the court case. We originally asked for two sets, the originals and the copies, and it was the copy file that enabled me to actually take the case for a complicated set of reasons. But yes, Smith was, it's quite an amusing set of letters because the, the differential nature of it is extraordinary. But also Smith is doing this after hours on the Yarralumla photocopier because he's meant to be working for another Governor General by then. So he writes to Kerr full of apologies that because of these voluminous letters, which we now know are 212, I didn't know that at the time, there's 1,200 pages, Poor old David Smith is taking out the staples, removing <laughs> the... Well, there's some small justice in the world. <laughs> and he's unfolding all of the attachments, photocopying them all meticulously, and it ends up taking him more than six months. So... <laughs> but when, when he finally writes so John back, would have had a few drinks in that time. <laughs> the, uh, the, can I just say one more yeah. thing, Kerry, about that? The wonderful thing about the Smith-Kerr letters is that these actually became really important in the High Court decision in our favour because the High Court, we argued all along, this shows that they were always under the control of the official secretary. They were under formal official control. If they'd been personal letters, he would have just taken them with him. He wouldn't have needed to have David Smith photocopying all night. And that was actually referred to in the High Court decision. So I was very pleased to see that circularity as well. OK, the letters. You say the palace was complicit. That's contested. And you say that the letters contained a smoking gun. Now, how clear is that to you? Well, the smoking gun uh, uh, the is smoke. the conclusive proof. Yeah, no, the word smoking gun is 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 actually not my term. Um, what I've always said is the letters show that the palace was um, involved in the decision that Kerr made, and there's absolutely no question about that. These letters uh, constitute that role, um, and that's the terms that Buckingham Palace has always put it in, in terms of their denial. They denied at the time of the dismissal that they had any role or any part to play in the dismissal of the government. After the letters came out, and interestingly, not after the High Court decision, they made no comment after that. But after the letters came out, they very quickly, within about five hours, released a statement in two parts. Firstly, saying that they still maintain that letters between the Queen and Governors-General are personal, which I thought was very interesting, given that our High Court had just found otherwise. But um, also saying that the letters show that neither the Queen nor any member of the royal household had any part to play in the decision that Sir John Kerr made. That's what I contest totally and absolutely, and that's what the letters show is simply not the case. 
Um, there are several points through the letters where Kerr act actually asks Charteris to make comments for him to take into account when he says, when I make the decision that I must make um, uh, during the blocking of supply. So it's, it's clear that this is an active role um, in terms of Charteris's replies to Kerr. Um, Malcolm Turnbull says in his excellent forward to my book, The Palace Letters, and it is a marvellous forward, um, he says that Kerr makes it very clear to Charteris that he is contemplating dismissing the government and Charteris, um, and he said, not only does Charteris not attempt to dissuade him or not attempt to point to the need to follow the advice of the Prime Minister, but he says some of the letters can be taken as encouragement for, of him to do so. So is it clear to you that, um, that when uh, Charteris actually uh, agrees that the reserve powers do in fact exist, and points occur in the direction of a constitutional expert in Canada um, and his arguments for the reserve powers um, as supportive reading. Now, is it, clear, is it really clear that in doing that, this makes Charteris complicit? Is, is there a sort of implicit encouragement there? Is that what you would argue? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you could say it's more than implicit. Um, the, the, the pointing to Eugene Fawzi is extremely important and Charteris does that in a letter in um, October um, and, and it's when Kerr is considering very openly with Charteris that he's going to have to make a decision um, and should he follow, the, as he says, the, the usual constitutional conventions. Charteris is... Uh, uh, Fawzi is someone who was known to be... Um, a stalwart supporter of not only the existence of the reserve powers, but the use of the reserve powers. So it's a very specific theoretical position he's placing, he's pointing Kerr to. Now, after the letters came out, I actually accessed Fawzi's papers in the Canadian archives. They arrived fully digitised in astonishing time, given that I've been waiting for nine years for some material from the Australian archives, um, uh, uh, and they were fascinating because Kerr and Fawzi then struck up a friendship through letters. Um, and, and, and Kerr lays quite bare how important that simple comment from Charteris was. He refers to it in one of the letters. Uh, and he says after that he goes out and gets Fawzi's work that it was extremely important to him. So it's a clear reference. But there's, a, there's another um, uh, uh, reference to the Canadian situation in the final letter that Charteris writes. And if you doubt the notion that there's an encouragement here, um, that final letter is very telling because it, it again refers to the reserve powers. And Charteris knows that Kerr is very concerned that any action he may take, as he'd said in an earlier letter, may um, have negative Im Im implications for the monarchy in Australia. And Charteris assages that concern and he says, if you do, as you must, and, and as you constitutionally must, uh, that you can have no fear that this will do um, the monarchy any avoidable harm. In fact, the chances are it will do it good. So it's a very, um, it's a very uh, uh, a clear statement that Charteris is not concerned about the direction that Kerr is going in at that point, and that's the final letter before the dismissal. So uh, I have no hesitation in saying that Kerr found these, as he himself says, um, advice on dismissal. And the critical factor about the questions about the reserve powers 
is that both Kerr and Charteris know that Kerr is at the same time waiting for the formal advice of the legal officers in Australia on that very question. And that Kerr is expecting, he's already written to Charteris and says that he expected the law officers, that is the Solicitor General and the Australian Attorney General, to tell him that there is no place for the use of the reserve powers at that particular point and in relation to the blocking of supply, which is exactly what they do advise him on the 4th, I think it's the 6th of November 1975, so five days before the dismissal. Charteris cuts across that and says, no question, the reserve powers do exist. That's, that is the critical set of letters. And all of this is happening without the knowledge of the Prime Minister, to whom Kerr was supposed to be taking all of his formal advice from. And, and the one thing you might acknowledge for, uh, for Sir Anthony Mason is that at least Mason, while he was engaged in all of these conversations with Kerr, at least he said that he believed that Kerr should inform Whitlam to at least give Whitlam the opportunity, knowing that uh, that if um, if Whitlam was not to call an election, if Whitlam was not prepared to call an election himself, uh, was, I'll rephrase this: that that if Goff could not break the deadlock of supply and keep the money flowing, um, that uh, he should know that Kerr would dismiss him if, that, if, if he was not prepared to go to an election, that Gough could at least then call the election himself as the government and go to the election as the government, which was a massive advantage over an opposition. But Sir Martin Charteris did not uh, say to Kerr, you should, of course, inform the Prime Minister if you're intending to dismiss him? Well, absolutely. That, that's the great gap in these letters, is the question of the, the, the constitutional principle, as it's called in the Imperial Conferences and elsewhere. This is the constitutional principle of acting on advice of elected ministers. Um, that, that's what responsible government is. Um, and, and the cardinal responsibility of a Governor-General is to act on the advice of their ministers and to counsel, to advise and to warn. Now, Kerr had already said that he was not speaking to Whitlam about these matters, that he was not revealing any of these intentions to Whitlam. Um, and he had told Charteris that. The palace was aware of his silence to the Prime Minister on the most critical constitutional issues facing um, a Governor-General, certainly in our lifetime. So um, that was the prior knowledge of, of, the, of the palace. And I think the lack of uh, 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 candour of the Governor-General and, in fact, the misleading of the Governor-General of the Prime Minister is now roundly seen as his Kerr's great moral failing. This, this was his enormous, um, most significant failure, is that he did not warn the Prime Minister. And the shocking thing, of course, is that the Palace is aware of that. There is nothing in the letters from Charteris indicating that he must, of course, speak to the Prime Minister or indicating that he must uh, take the advice of the Prime Minister. He doesn't even ask him after Kerr has said, I am waiting for the formal advice and opinion of the law officers. He never once asks him, certainly not in these letters, what was that advice? Yeah. <laughs> and yet he cuts across it and tells him quite, quite different advice himself. So I think with the Mason commentary, which of course came, I mean, I, I'm prepared to be ambivalent about that, whether Mason ever actually said that to him for, the, for this reason. Mason says, once all of this came out, of course, 37 years later, and it was 
I think, roundly recognised that Kerr ought to have, at the very least, warned Whitlam. Mason immediately said, I told him that he ought to have warned Whitlam that he would be at risk of being seen as deceptive if he did not. However, against that is that Kerr doesn't mention that in his letter, in his notation, which is, I suppose, perhaps... Self-serving. Yes, it's yes. self-serving. But, but yeah. Mason did draft a letter of dismissal for Kerr, yes. knowing that he hadn't warned Whitlam. Yes. So there's, I think there's still a question mark over that, and ultimately it doesn't matter. He should have. There's no doubt about that. Now, also tellingly, uh, Charteris, um, uh, directly addressing Kerr's question of, uh, of Gough possibly racing mm. Kerr to the palace to get the Queen to dismiss Kerr before Kerr could dismiss Gough, um, <laughs> Charteris says, look, you know, it would, there'd be some argy-bargy, but in the end, the Queen would have to take the advice of the Prime Minister and essentially sack Kerr. Now, uh, when I read that, I thought, um, so is Charteris saying this to, um, uh, to, to send a signal to Kerr that, that actually Gough does... Uh, you know, they, they should both be taking advice from the, from the elected Prime Minister. Or is, or is Charteris sending Kerr a warning? Well... That, uh, that he'd better have in mind, uh, in the actions he's taking, to take them in such a way that the Queen doesn't have to decide on a request from Gough. That's right, and this is this is a critical conversation because it does confirm uh, what Char what uh, uh, Kerr had described in his journal, the, the the communication he had with Prince Charles in September 1975. I find that letter deeply troubling for the following reason: that it not only says uh, there would be considerable comings and goings, I think is the term, um, but in the end, uh, the Queen would, of course, as a constitutional monarch, have to take the advice of the Prime Minister, as she must. It's the considerable comings and, and goings, or toings and proing, whatever the word is, um, but at the end of the road, he, she must take that advice, because the context of that conversation we know from Kerr's other papers is the context in which Kerr is considering dismissing the government. Um, and the other part in that letter that's important is that Charteris says, if Whitlam sought your recall, um, she would, of course, be most unhappy, about, take most unkindly to that. Now, the key thing is that a constitutional monarch must remain above politics at all times. That's fundamental. That's critical. And it's so important to the nature of a constitutional monarchy. We're always told the Queen does not involve in political matters, does not comment on political matters, never becomes involved in domestic political matters. It's so important that's even on the Buckingham Palace website. You can see this referred to as a critical part of the Queen's role. Well, if, I, it's, on, if it's on the website, it must be true. That's, well, <laughs> what the letters show us is that in several instances, it's not, it's not true. It's maintained through secrecy by making a comment on whether the Queen would be happy or otherwise about a decision of the Prime Minister in relation to the tenure of a Governor-General shows a political involvement. And that can only have been taken by Kerr with some degree of, of, of positivity because there's a contest here between his own dismissal and Whitlam's. There's no comment in the letter about the possible dismissal of Gough Whitlam. There's only a comment about the possible dismissal of Kerr. Um, and, 
And the other thing I say this as a political scientist is that from the 1930 Imperial Conference, this question about who advises whom in relation to the appointment or removal of a Governor-General was established, it was finalised. There's one person only, and that is the Prime Minister who advises the palace. And the action is solely, and it says, the channel of communication is solely between those two. They had no right and no propriety to be discussing this with Sir John Kerr himself. The only people they should have discussed Kerr's tenure with was Gough Whitlam. And, 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 and this, this would have just fed Kerr's paranoia about Gough sacking him and would have cemented in him his determination to do this without telling his prime Exactly, and that's certainly how Malcolm Turnbull interpreted it in his yeah. forward, is that he said it would have said to Kerr, if you are to remove Whitlam, then you do it in silence and in stealth. You act quickly, as he did. Yeah. Now, before you came along with volume two of the Whitlam biography and your subsequent publications, the Australian's Paul Kelly pretty much commanded the field in terms of historical interpretations of the dismissal, and he did do a lot of good work. He did, he did. Um, he's long maintained that Kerr owned the decision to sack Gough Whitlam, that the palace's hands were clean, that in fact they believed Kerr had acted prematurely, that a political solution was still on the cards. Kelly still holds to that view and fundamentally disagrees with your interpretations of the Charteris letters. Now, um, you still to some extent do have to read between the lines in the correspondence. But what is your fundamental, and I, I know uh, uh, there was that celebrated exchange on Q&A a couple of weeks ago, but can you just very quickly, because we're going to get pushed for time, just give me your brief response to Paul Kelly. Well, it, it just doesn't, um, it just doesn't conform with the history as we now know it. I mean, there's so much vast material, which I have to say the High Court found compelling, about the official nature of these communications, um, that, that it's impossible to take the line that the Queen had zero involvement whatsoever. I mean, these letters were central to Kerr's decision to dismiss the government. Of course the decision was Kerr's. I mean, that's never been in dispute. It was, the, it was Kerr who dismissed Gough Whitlam in the afternoon of the 11th of November in his study. You know, it's never been suggested the Queen was hiding behind the, the curtain somewhere. So, you know, I think that the problem with the analysis that Kerr and his co-writer are putting through their latest book is that it reduces to um, really denigrating um, a, a different interpretation of the letters as either conspiracy theory or, um, or, or, or putting it in the extremest possible terms as the Queen um, li politically liquidating prime ministers, which is just absurd. It doesn't engage with this in a historical sense and it doesn't really advance our understanding of the letters. The letters are clear that Kerr has informed the palace in advance of each of the key steps that he then has to take He's flagged with them the possibility of acting against the advice of the ministers. In fact, he does that from the earliest letters. He flags with them the fact that he will potentially not take the advice, the formal legal advice of the law officers, as indeed he doesn't. Um, and he flags with them the prospective use of the reserve powers at a time when the law officers are advising him that the law officers either do not, ex that the reserve powers do not exist, certainly the Attorney General was of that view, or in Sir Miles Byers' view, uh, are not applicable in this instance. Um, Byers later came out much more strongly, the Solicitor General, and said the reserve powers are a fiction, they do not exist, and they cannot exist because they countermand the, the view of the people expressed through 
the electoral process. So it is around the question of the reserve powers that I think it is simply untenable to claim that there was any, um, that there was absolutely no involvement. The complicity lies in their awareness that Kerr is deceiving the Prime Minister and at no point saying to Kerr, um, have you spoken to your Prime Minister about it? Certainly Mungo McCallum wrote a wonderful piece soon after the letters came out with that heading and, and, and said that it was unconscionable that for a constitutional monarch to know that the Governor-General was not speaking to the Prime Minister about these matters and not to say anything either to him or the Prime Minister. So to just very quickly recap, you've got this, I mean, and it's hard for me not to see Kerr um, as being at the centre of a web, mm. like the spider, and he's weaving this web. And he starts, he starts by drawing in Anthony Mason, and he draws in the academics, and he draws in Charlie, and he draws in Barwick, and he draws in Fraser, who didn't wait to be drawn in. No, um, and Fraser, and was, Fraser was another <laughs> ruthless and willing participant who was so hungry for power that he was prepared to see the Constitution torn up in a sense. He was prepared to see that, that kind of extraordinarily divisive moment in Australian politics to get to an office that he was probably going to get to anyway, mm. almost certainly going mm. to get to, because the Whitlam government was so scandal-wracked by that stage and so weakened that even if the election hadn't come for another 12 months, and the Hayden budget of 1975 was such a credible document that Malcolm Fraser left it intact when he became Prime Minister. Mm, mm, mm. So, so Fraser's part in this should never be underplayed. But, uh, but I want to come now to the role of the National Archive. How have these actions sat with the Archive's mission of disclosure? Not very well. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a, there are some things which I detail in this book which people have written to me about and said is absolutely, you know, eye-popping and, and quite shocking. Um, and I didn't write about them at the time of the court case because I followed Anthony Whitlam, Goff's eldest son, who was our barrister in the federal court, um, and his, his advice was always to, to not unsettle the judge. <laughs> and so, very good advice. But I, and it was not about the judge, it was about the archives, not unsettle the case in particular. And I didn't want to write about this at the time, I waited till the case was over. But there were several things that took place during the trial that were quite shocking. The first is that when I'd asked for the copy files in 2011, I was told that they, even though they were on open access and I thought I'd found a way into the palace letters, I was told that they were um, not available for public access, contradicting what was said on file, and then preemptively telling me that they'd in fact removed them from public access. I, I, during the court case, we asked to see the basis for that decision and basically, not to put too fine a word on it, they, I had been misled, perhaps I could say lied to, because the relevant instrument of deposit did not say that at all. It said they should have been released, and that was five years before I took legal action. So that was the first shock. The second shock was that having released, having appeared now to have to release the copy file, we received an affidavit just the day before, I think, the court case, telling us that that instrument of deposit had been changed overnight, and with that, half our, half our legal action fell apart. That was done by the archives and Sir John Kerr's um, stepdaughter to change those conditions whilst the case was in train. So some really troubling act actions by the archives who worked determinedly to keep these letters secret. Uh, Kerry and I were talking just previously about the extraordinary fact that the Director General of the National Archives actually put forward a secret submission, a closed submission, 
uh, uh, to the court arguing why they shouldn't be released. And that you yet, weren't allowed to see. I never, we never saw it. My, my lawyers couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I still haven't seen it. Um, and, and yet he calls himself the head of a pro-disclosure organisation. So, um, and look, Sounds like they've, they've absolutely captured the spirit of the current national security climate in Australia generally. <laughs> But the worst thing about the archives, Kerry, is, is that is the extraordinary cost of this from their already strained budget. They spent a million dollars on their own legal fees um, and having lost at the High Court, they were then in receipt of three cost orders against them, paying my costs, as I said, all the way back to the Federal Court, which was close to another million dollars. So they have spent two million dollars fighting to prevent access to some of the most marvellous and rich historical documents we have in our national archives. It's just extraordinary. And at a time when they've been cutting resources and staff repeatedly over the last decade. So I think there's some very troubling aspects to the archives' behaviour in this. And, and again, very briefly, so the High Court rules that you are to be given access to those letters and the National Archives' response is, well, we'll take a look at this and it could take 90 days and we're not sure whether we should have, might not have to redact some of it. Yeah, the immediate response from the archives, I have to say, was disappointing. It was that, um, yes, that they were claiming it could take them 90 working days, that they had to reconsider um, my application. We actually, my lawyers always said that that was a misreading of the High Court decision, that it was not a new application as they were treating it as, it was a reconsideration and that required within 30 days, uh, 30 working days and um, also reading the judgments, not just the orders of the court, but reading the judgments made it very clear that they would be hard pressed to make redactions. Interestingly, um, three days before they actually did release them, I found out from a journalist who rang me and said, How, what do you think of the fact that the archives is releasing the letters in full? And I said, well, it's wonderful, but thanks for telling me. Yeah. Um, and I was not told at all, and they'd been telling my lawyers. In fact, we were about to, to launch a, um, a, a writ under the, under the High Court uh, 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 order for their release because we'd, ha we'd had nothing but difficulty in, from the archives. So it was disappointing was disappointing that when they did release them, they did not have a single historian there, which I think was uh, made that presentation very problematic. Now, one thing that we haven't got to at all, and we won't, it, it's going to be a very passing reference, and, and it's, it's, it may remain one of, the, one of the great unknowns of this whole saga, and that is the claims of conspiracy involving the CIA, <laughs> uh, who, who clearly did regard uh, the Whitlam government as a security risk, because it's in writing that they did. They actually, the, the, uh, they sent a letter to the acting head of ASIO at virtually this same time, raising their concerns about the possibility of uh, Australia having to be taken out of the so-called Five Eyes, I, I think was so. And then of course in 1977, in July of 77, uh, Gough Whitlam uh, was called to a Sydney airport meeting with Warren Christopher, who was uh, Jimmy Carter's a Secretary of State, or Assistant Secretary of State for the Asia-Pacific, on his way to an ANZUS meeting in New Zealand, and he came via Sydney Airport to meet with Gough, to give Gough, Gough by this stage is opposition leader, to give Gough a personal message from Jimmy Carter of apology, and said that America would never, and his assurance that America again, would never again interfere in Australian politics. Mm. And that's where it sits. Uh, attempts by various people, including me and you, 
to find out more from the uh, Carter archive uh, have met with a blank wall. Mm. Now maybe one day we'll know something more about that. Was that just the hostility of the Nixon government generally or was there something more to it? Quick comment on that? Well, it's one of the remain. There's a lot of remaining unknowns, I'm sure, but uh, that's certainly one of them. It coincided with the time frame in that Whitlam had uncovered or been revealed to him that there were CIA operatives at, working at Pine Gap that he'd not been told of, and there is a list through which they're meant to be informed of these things. Um, and he was going to make an announcement on that on the on November the 11th, 1975, in the Parliament. So there's always a view that there's more on that front. With the dismissal, I never say never. Anything is possible because of the sorts of things that have been revealed in the last few years. But I do think with a, a history like this that is so distorted, so uncertain, that has taken so many years to come out through deep archival research and so on, it's really important to stick with what the documents tell you. And at the moment, you know, there aren't the sorts of documents that lead down that path. And I know that Guy Rundle in particular has been very hot on that, um, on following that up. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's more than enough material to show that it was, at the very least, a far more complex web, as you said before, of people involved in Kerr's decision than the simple solo act of a lonely and agonised Governor-General that we were told in 1975. And I think we can now safely say, yes, it was a coup. <laughs> Well, you know, in the sense that this was determined behind closed doors with, with complete secrecy from the government of the day, it's hard to call it anything else, yeah. Jenny Hocking, uh, thank you very, very much uh, for the work that you've done and the, and the revelations that have come as a result of your extraordinary doggedness, and thank you very much for sharing it with us tonight. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This event was generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm -hmm.